Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. We want to start by thanking all of our listeners for sending in a bunch of great voicemails. We are excited to have a mailbag episode uh, in the upcoming weeks, so keep those coming. Today is an episode where we're going to focus on uh, the rural vote. And to help us do that is our friend J.D. Shulton. J.D. played baseball at Morningside College and the University of Nebraska. And after college, he played baseball in seven different countries. But knowing me, you probably think he's only here because he's a former professional baseball player. But wait, there's more. He then went on to work as a civil litigation paralegal before he launched his his congressional campaigns. Uh, He is a two-time 2018 and 2020 congressional candidate in Iowa's 4th District. He drew attention as an example for how Democrats can run to compete in rural areas. In 2018, J.D.'s campaign lost by just 3%. I'm familiar with this dynamic. Fewer than 11,000 votes in a district with 70,000 more registered Republicans than Democrats and where Trump won by 27% in 2016. So let's let's review that again. Trump won the district by 27% and J.D. came within 3%. In 2020, J.D. took his campaign RV to all 374 towns in the district and was one of the few non-incumbent candidates to outperform the top of the ticket. He ran on antitrust issues, which we'll discuss, and their impact on rural communities. Today, he is the executive director of RuralVote.org. J.D., how you doing? I am excellent and happy to be here. And first of all, I'm a longtime listener and just thank you two for uh, being great messengers for the party. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks for listening. Ravi. Let's do the news of the week. Well, uh, the big news this week uh, continues to be that the Delta variant is raging across our country, and we had more than 124,000 new cases uh, each day over the past few days, and that's more than double the levels of two weeks ago. And this is particularly problematic in rural America where vaccination rates are low, cases are high, and hospital capacity uh, in some places is nearly non-existent and shrinking. And so it couldn't be more timely to have J.D. on the podcast. And, and J.D., you, you know, your state of Iowa seems to have, you know, as as Missouri as well, actually, both seem to have really pronounced problems with this variant and with COVID generally. And Iowa recently threw out 80,000 doses of vaccine because the demand was so low. J.D., what's going on? What's driving the skepticism in rural America in particular? And what can we do about it? Well, I think originally when we first had this too, uh, where I'm originally from, Sioux City, Iowa, has was the hotbed of it twice because of meat pa- packing plants. And so we've had this battle this entire time. And I, I feel it stems from this mis- and disinformation that we're talking about. 
it, it is exemplified by what's happening with the vaccines. And I, I, so there's the politics side of it. And then there's also the rural communities are, are harder to get to in a lot of this. And, and that's what we're seeing too. I, I talked to several experts on this and they're trying to take mobile units out there and, and uh, things like that. But just for a regular checkup, it's getting harder and harder to live in rural America because of consolidation in hospitals and a, a lot of different uh, things. But uh, it's just a combination of those two things are, are really the reason what I'm seeing. Just as an anecdote about this, like how difficult it is to move people to get vaccinated who have, for whatever reason, made the decision not to. Anecdotally, the other day in Kansas City, there was a Garth Brooks concert that sold out Arrowhead Stadium. So like tens of thousands of people. Now, the vaccination rate in the Kansas City area is about 40%, right? So you got to figure, if, you, if you're being generous, right, then you figure maybe 40%. Maybe a little more than 40% of the people going to this concert are vaccinated. Well, they made a big deal out of the fact that they were offering vaccinations at the concert. And furthermore, that if you got vaccinated at the concert, then they would put you in a drawing for you to move into front row seats, like, like awesome seats, if you got vaccinated on your way into the concert. So you got to figure there's like, what, 40,000, 50,000 people there, something like that. 50% at least are not vaccinated. 35 people got the vaccine at the concert. So it is very frustrating, and I'm not sure what to do with, with uh, this demographic. Well, I, I think it's also what we're seeing with the administration is how do we get the message to people uh, with a lot of this stuff, too? I mean, it, it goes back to like the ARP and, and different things that, that have already been passed and, and what the administration's really struggling with their microphones or megaphones. And we did a poll a couple months ago that really – I think really put a spotlight on this when we just asked uh, with the $1,400 stimulus checks, did that, uh, was that Biden? Was that Trump? Who was that? And only 50% thought it came from Biden. And so it's, whether it's pushing vaccinations, whether it's other things, I think there's a huge problem in this country with getting that message to the people who need it. Yeah. And I think the Biden administration is in a bit of a bind that Jason and I talk about a lot, which is if he's the messenger, which he continues to be, that has its limits because in a lot of these communities, that doesn't help that Biden is the messenger. Um, JD, when you think about, you know, we talked about country music, for example, what are other messengers that you think about that are on the table potentially that we should be focusing on? I think athletes have been really big, uh, you know, just seeing what happened last year uh, after the death of George Floyd and how really athletes took to the mic with that and seeing the athletic activism. Uh, because a lot of uh, people all over the political spectrum follow sports. Uh, but I think especially what we're seeing here in Iowa is just we, we're seeing the lack of leadership on the Republican side. Uh, I, th I think the governor has announced that she's uh, been vaccinated. But other than that, I don't think we have one Republican official that is, has publicly said that they're vaccinated. I think that's a huge thing is just getting the leadership on the other side. And, and we even have a, a, a Republican doctor in Congress here in Iowa. So um, I, I think she's been pushing a, a little bit for vaccination. She's on the other side of the state. So uh, I, I'm not as familiar with her, but I know my congressman hasn't publicly said if he got a vaccination or not. Which is amazing, right? Because if he won't publicly say, then he probably got vaccinated, right? I mean, right. Like, like, I mean, it, because there's there's not really for him there's not a downside to saying he didn't get vaccinated, right? How many people do you have like in your life personally, not political contacts or like folks, you know, who are like Republicans who are active in, in your area, but like just friends of yours, I'm curious, 
who haven't been vaccinated. And then as a sub question of that, of those friends who haven't been vaccinated, do you have a feel for whether they are like anti the vaccine or whether there's a portion of them that's just like not gotten around to it? Like, what is that? Because I know what that's like where I am. What's it like where you are? So uh, I've been playing baseball this summer and I, 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 a lot of it is great because one, it's a lot of people who don't care about politics that I'm around and I, and it's, it's great to hear fresh things. And, and so we have beers after the game and we're just talking. And, and last week I found out that one of the guys is a huge anti-vaxxer, but he got vaccinated because of his job. Mm. And, and he's just like, yep, yep. I had to do it. And, and that's what we're seeing here a little bit is we're starting to see hospitals, uh, uh, uh mandate that for their employees. We're, we're seeing a little of that with different companies, um, and, and that's, I think ultimately that's the, the next wave of in the next month or two, I think it's going to be more corporations, uh, getting on board with, with, uh, uh, mandatory vaccinations. And Jason, uh, the Pentagon just announced that it's going to be mandating vaccines for the country's 1.3 million active duty service members. How do you think that's going to go down? Every time there's a big change with, um, military policy, whether it's as big as like getting rid of don't ask, don't tell or something like this. It's always amazing to me how people think like on the, in the outside world, they're like, Oh, I don't know how this is going to go over. Not understanding that the military is a place where, Oh, that's the rule now. I guess that's what we're doing now. Like that's, that's how it works. And, uh, and it's funny when, I, when I, the other veterans I've talked to about this, overwhelmingly what people have said uh, is, has not been like, yeah, it's be messed up if they made them get this vaccine. Overwhelmingly, what I keep hearing from people is, yeah, um, did you know that apparently that was optional? I, I don't recall that being optional. So to me, this is what's normal, is, is mandating you're going to get your vaccines. That's, that's what's normal in the military. Well, I think military sets the tone a lot with this. Um, you see a disproportionate amount of people from rural communities that, that join the military. So I think that's very encouraging. Uh, as well. And, and once those folks and uh, National Guard folks, once they get their vaccination, they go back to their communities and talk about just, hey, yeah, I didn't, it's not a big deal. I, I think that's very important uh, part of this. But uh, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting, especially here in Iowa. Again, the Republican Party used to be the party of local control. And here, now that they have all this power at the state level, they're taking away local control. And so I think that's going to be a, a huge battle once school starts here in a, in a month or so. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, we're at this stage where persuasion has reached its limits and we're kind of at the coercion stage. <laughs> Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> I, I, I mean, pretty much. I think we're transitioning <laughs> right now. You know what it reminds me of is I remember and this, I'm about to sound real old, but I remember when, being like one of the last people I knew to go ahead and get a cell phone, like about, I don't know, almost 20 years ago or whatever it was. And, and I remember realizing that the reason I was getting one is because it had become inconvenient not to have one. Like I was, you know, it's funny to think about this now because I have such a problem with screen time. But back then, like I was like, no, everybody seems, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to just be able to reach me wherever I am. I don't want this phone to rule my life. You know, I was one of those guys when I was like in my early twenties. And, and then eventually I remember thinking it's now inconvenient to live in the modern world without a cell phone. They forced me to do it. That's kind of where the vaccine is hopefully going, right? It's not just coercion. It's like it will become inconvenient and too much trouble not to not to have it. And I think that's exactly right. Like here, Texas Roadhouse has just been packed 
You got to tell people that you're talking, that's the chain like steakhouse. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. Yeah. The chain steakhouse. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's not too far from uh, my house here in Sioux city. And so if they required one, I, I think that'd be a game changer and it's, it's things like that. And, and, but it's also taking the leadership of uh, the governor to work with some of these places and finding what's popular. And if it's, if it's popular, then let's work with them. Try to find a, a situation where we get more and more folks vaccinated. I mean, in Iowa, if Pizza Ranch, if Pizza right. Ranch required it, my goodness, Iowa would have the highest vaccination rate in the country. I was actually at a Pizza Ranch on the night Obama won the caucus in Fort Dodge, I think. That's awesome. Well, Jason, I'm actually staring at a product from our next sponsor, Allform. They sent me an amazing armchair for my apartment. And it's not only super comfortable and was easy to put together, but uh, I was able to match it perfectly to the other chairs I already had in my apartment. And if you've been listening to this show, you know Helix, and Helix just launched Allform, which is going to bring to you the best sofas around. Yeah, you can pick your fabric, like spill, stain, and scratch resistant. The fabric color, color of the legs, sofa size and shape, everything. They got everything from armchairs and love seats up to eight seat sectionals. So there's something for everybody. All form sofas are delivered right to your door with fast, free shipping, like super fast. It takes just three to seven days to arrive. And then you have 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. And if you don't, all form will pick it up and give you a full refund. Plus, they offer a forever warranty, like truly forever. We love our all form sofa that is in our kitchen gets a lot of seated time. Everybody's butt in the house has spent a lot of time on that sofa. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash majority54. Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority54. Today's episode is also brought to you by BetterHelp. If something is interfering with your happiness, if it's keeping you from reaching your goals, we recommend that you check out BetterHelp. It's, it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with a licensed therapist. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, or you can send a message to your counselor at any time and get timely, thoughtful responses. That's, that's a huge deal for people who are like, I don't have time for therapy. You can send a message to your counselor, and then they're going to give you a timely, thoughtful response about what you said. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and on top of that, financial aid is available. Services are available worldwide, and since BetterHelp has such a robust network of counselors, you can find the particular expertise that you need. You don't have to be limited to only who's in your area. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com m54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash M54. Let's get to This Week in Misinformation. And J.D., since we have you here, we want to talk about the rural votes and how Democrats can stop their backslide with rural voters in this country. And in 2020, you took an RV to each of the 374 towns in your district. Let's just start with what you learned on that trip. Well, uh, in in 2018, I did the same thing, but I went to I went to all 39 counties at least three times, and so our campaign was very unconventional in the sense that we didn't necessarily do the campaign in a box where you just do call time, call time, call time. I did a lot of call time while driving the RV and did the best we can with all that. But we really wanted to get out there and hear from people because in a district that has 70,000 more registered Republicans than Democrats, you're not going to win by just a TV ad. 
uh, no matter how good your TV ads are. And so we had to get out there. And, and to me, after these elections, I feel like I had this wealth of knowledge and I saw where the Democratic Party w- w- is going and I see where there's this huge gap in where people are and and not it's not necessarily politically, it's just how we campaign. And so that's where this really kind of started at. I, I, my partner in this uh, ruralvote.org is Matt Hildreth, who runs ruralorganizing.org. And we talked so much after the election about like, this is what we should be doing. This is what we needed to be doing. And so we thought if we combined our efforts, uh, we could really do something special. And so I think of Carroll County, which is in the district here. And in 2008, it voted for Obama. In 2020, it voted for Trump at 71%. And so what is a county like Carroll County? Not a lot of people don't move in or move out of Carroll County, but why has that shifted so dramatically? And there's a lot of reasons, but the number one by far to me and what I saw on the ground and what I see out there is the mis and disinformation, especially on Facebook. Hardly anybody in 2008 was really in tune with Facebook the way they are now. This district, the fourth district, is the number one district in America that Republicans and Democratic voters are on Facebook. And and it, it just you look at the top 10 things every day that is posted on Facebook, and there's a Twitter account that documents this, seven out of 10, and often 10 out of 10, it's right-wing things. It's uh, Ben Shapiro, uh, Bangino, uh, OAN, Breitbart, all that stuff. And, and ultimately, we have to find a way to get messengers out there. And, and it's, it's not so much the message, it's the messengers. And that's what we're, we're really working on. You know what I think is interesting about that is there's probably a fair amount of people listening to this right now who come from parts of the country that are, are nowhere near where you or I are from. And it might be shocking to them to learn that the vast majority of voters in your district are getting a lot of their information from Facebook because Honestly, they might think that people don't have internet access, right? They might, um, but right. The, and, and so when you think about the small tactical plays that Democrats try to make to cater to rural voters, like like rural broadband, there's a lot of people who do need better broadband, but there's a lot of people who are like, I have good internet, right? right. And <laughs> and those people are voting, and they're getting information over the internet that is deceiving them. And I think your point is. The way to break through that is you have to physically go to them. Yeah. One of the things I heard most often in rural areas, and I bet you've heard this too, was, wow, it has been a long time since anyone came here. It, and that's what I talked with Beto O'Rourke a lot about when he was running for president and and just about, you know, having these conversations and uh, in, in going into these places that traditionally don't vote Democrat and just talking with folks. And you never know. Uh, I think, Jason, uh, when you came up here to Sioux City and, and uh, spoke, I used your uh, uh, little anecdote about the first time you went door knocking and, and how important that was. And I, I used that the whole two campaigns. No, I remember that. And, and I appreciate it. The basic premise of the whole thing is that most voters aren't actually uh, like going down a spreadsheet of your beliefs and trying to figure out if theirs line up with yours. What they're really doing is sizing you up for whether you care about people like them. And, and showing up is a huge part of that. Like showing up in a community that doesn't usually get particularly Democratic candidates to show up communicates that like, well, you matter to me. I'm here. JD, and this might be where you're going. When you show up, what do we say? You know, because obviously what you're saying is going to be different than if I were running for 
you know, Congress in, you know, south of Manhattan, right? Um, like, what are what are the messages that you find resonate with rural voters? I, I think the biggest thing is is listen. And the more you listen to them, the more they start believing in you. I, I heard this great anecdote about Bill Clinton where uh, he was – Uh, Somebody was talking to him and like saying something that he didn't agree at all and just like really challenging him. And then at the end, he just goes, you know what? I think we both agree. And he moved on. (laughs) (laughs) You you, you never know. Like uh, there's certain people you're never going to get a hold of. But uh, I think it boils down to this. Again, going back to the poll that we did uh, with YouGov a couple months ago that really, I think, put a spotlight on this. And this is rural battleground voters. It's across the nation, eight different uh, battleground states. And, and our pollster, John Ray, did a great job. He said this is probably one of the most substantial polling he's ever done. And we just took what we thought would be a generic, decent rural candidate. And and just uh, we put them up against someone who's from the coast, uh, very wealthy, who uh, wants to give uh, tax breaks to the, the super wealthy. And that generic candidate wins by, I think, like 34, 35%. Then you put a D by that candidate, they lose by 1%. That's what we're up against. And you see in Missouri with uh, workers' rights, you see in Nebraska and Utah and and Idaho with uh, passing Medicaid expansion. You saw uh, marijuana being passed in in South Dakota and $15 minimum wage in Florida. Our policies are extremely popular right now. So it's it's not so much that uh, talking about, oh, this this one thing is going to change your life and and be for you or anything like that. It's, It's about the brand. And the Democratic brand, and it's it, it goes hand in hand with the mis and disinformation that's just being spewed constantly, and and that's what we're up against. Let's go back to the premise of what Ravi was saying a second ago, because I want to play with it. So, you know, Ravi's saying obviously, if I were to run uh, for Congress in, in the southern part of Manhattan, I would sound different than I would uh, if I were in Iowa's fourth district. But I'm not sure that that's true in in the sense of what policies you would actually be for, right? Like if you were to fill out a questionnaire. I I don't think that like your actual policy and you did extremely well there and kind of set the bar for what a Democrat can do there for now, your policy positions are very progressive. And so for those listening, talk a little bit about what it means to talk differently, because I have a hypothesis on this, but I think people listening think that it means be more conservative. And I don't think that's what it means. That's exactly right. And, you know, one thing I really noticed, uh, I'm very strong on antitrust issues. And I talk to farmers who will always vote for me and ones who will never vote for me and everywhere in between. And none of them push back on that. But I talk to it in a way that even universal health care, I'm extremely for that because this district, we have a bunch of farmers and small business owners who don't have employer health insurance and how important that would be for them. And that's like Medicare for all and all that. Talking to them about those issues, I I didn't step down from from what I believed or what I wanted. Uh, I talked with them about how it would impact their lives. And and maybe you, you change it a little bit as you know somebody who's already with you compared to somebody who's not, but you talk about it in a way that, and you talk about it to them, with them, in a language that they understand. And I think that's a, a part of the Democratic brand right now in why we're not as successful, is you look at how candidates run, and the majority of the people that they, the candidates talk to, they talk to consultants and they talk to donors. We need more folks talking to people. 
and rural is pretty diverse. I think that's something that people don't understand too. We think of this white farmer from the Midwest, but but in actuality, it is much more diverse than that. We have Native American communities. We have Black Southerners uh, that are that really there's a lot of potential down there with votes. What we saw in Georgia, and North Carolina, and, and Alabama, and Mississippi, there's there's a lot more potential there than than I think people uh, think. Uh, but here in the Midwest. You go to a, a lot of the areas, there's a strong foundation of the Latino community. And I feel the next wave of a rural Democrat in the Midwest is is a Latino or Latina. And that is something that we should be preparing for now. Uh, for I mean, it might take a, a cycle or two, but it might take a decade. But that's something that we should be investing in right now. The question of the economic arguments that Democrats make, which is a lot of the policy that you're talking about that's popular, I think gets to dollars and cents, right? And how that impacts people. But one thing that we've found uh, over the past decade plus is that even when you've convinced people that we're better on the policy, there are cultural issues, there are wedge issues, there, there are different stories that are being told to people that seem to be resonating beyond any policy that we try to convince people of. And, you know, you think about like Wright County, JD, which is the county we were talking about before we started recording in your district or the district that you ran in is I think over 85% white. And I think one thing I do notice is that maybe the policies were like a congressional candidate here in Manhattan may sound similar when it comes to the policies as a candidate in, uh, in your district in Iowa. Um, one thing I know for sure is that the story that we're telling here uh, isn't being like isn't in any way being con- you know created to be persuasive to a county that's eighty five percent white um, because I think of we celebrate things without doing any other work to convince people that they should be celebrating it too often. I find like we're like hey like America's changing it's looking like me you know like Kamala Harris right like it's you know the first Indian American vice president. And we celebrate these things. And I believe in celebrating them. They, 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 they feel like progress to me. But then I look at a place like Wright County, and I feel like the story that's being told to them is things are changing at your expense. Jobs are being taken from you. The cultural cachet of this country is changing in ways that are excluding you. People are partying at your expense, and you're not invited. Uh, and we're the only people looking out for you. So what do we do about that? So I come from a lineage of prairie populism, and and Tom Harkin is Senator Tom Harkin was a huge hero of mine, uh, a congressman in these neck of the woods named Berkeley Bedell, who just passed away, uh, is a legendary. Um, in 1984, his reelection poster was uh, "The one percent controls the government. Does the 99 percent have a chance?" Uh, and so when I met Bernie for the first time, I, I told him that shtick's been here for decades. <laughs> but then you, know, you also have Paul Wellstone. And you look at kind of what they've done. And again, they're, they're all white men. I get that. But it, what we can talk about is our policies. And it doesn't matter if you're white, black, or brown. It, it's, it's about benefiting the, these communities. And so I think one of the things that was a huge strength of our campaign, getting back to antitrust a little bit, is there is a sense of blame in areas that aren't doing as well. And so they want, uh, they as in Republicans, want to point down. And I want to point up at saying, you're getting, you create all this, uh, uh, the soy, soybeans and corn and hogs and wind energy and all this stuff from our communities. But the number one thing that's getting uh, exported are our children. And it's because there's a lack of jobs here. And part of that is because of consolidation. 
uh, we have multinational corporations who are dictating what's happening in Wright County. That was a huge thing that I was trying to persuade folks and, and talk to folks about is saying, hey, listen, this is uh, about our communities and getting back to where it was when it was local control, more local control. When farmers are doing well, they go into town. When the towns do well, they go into Fort Dodge and the bigger towns. And those folks go to Des Moines and it's, it's, a, it's a grassroots effect and, and it starts from the bottom. This trickle down economics is not working for folks and, and people feel that. And I feel that, that that populism, when it comes to, to the democratic side of populism, now there's the faux populism and, and uh, we won't even mention a senator from, from uh, Jason's uh, uh, <laughs> uh, state. Josh Halley. <laughs> who, who loves to do this fake populism and this faux populism. And so um, I think a huge part of this too is calling out the game and, and then talking about why they're doing this. They, they don't have the policies right now. We do and call them on their crap and, and, and push for what we're for. One of the hardest things to navigate is white grievance politics, right? Like, and, and that's, that's really become the Republican brand uh, and, and how the Republicans do well in rural areas now is they say, just to what Robbie was describing, they're like, look, the, the liberals, they don't like you and they don't want you to be a part of the future, right? And so to some extent, you have to acknowledge, no, no truth to that, but what you have to acknowledge is that there's some sort of grievance, even if it is a grievance that is arrived at uh, in, a, in an ill-informed or, or disinformed way, there's a grievance. And so as a result, if, if a community is struggling, then there needs to be an explanation for why it is struggling. And so if one side is telling them, well, it's because of brown people on the coast, and the other side is not speaking to the fact that the community is struggling at all, well, they're going to, you know, right or wrong, if they don't know any better, they might go to the side that at least gave them an explanation, right? And your point, I think, is, hey, there's an actual reason that our community is struggling, and it's because all these white men in power have been, on both sides of the aisle for a long time, by the way, have been giving more and more power to enormous corporations who are screwing our, uh, our part of the country. And, and that has the benefit of being true, but also speaks to a grievance. A absolutely. And, and nowhere do I see that more than like on social media where like on Twitter, I mean, obviously politics is not on Twitter, uh, <laughs> uh, even though we all love to tweet and whatnot. But uh, I was getting retweeted by ranchers and farmers for Trump because they love that antitrust message. And, and I have people across the aisle with, with that uh, and that it was just kind of an experiment that has really just kind of taken off. J.D., before uh, you move on. Well, we, we've been saying an antitrust message. We've been saying, talking about, you know, corporations coming in and, and, and really hurting rural communities. But go ahead and get like in the weeds for a minute. There's a lot of people listening to this who don't have any idea what that means. So I want you to explain how is it that a lack of any kind of antitrust enforcement is screwing over agricultural communities in this country? All right trying to do the best truncated version possible because it's it's a weedy issue. But basically every industry in agriculture, everyone, uh, doesn't matter if you if it's seeds, uh, fertilizer, uh, the input side, the market side, uh, hogs, chickens, everything is consolidated to a point that is beyond the level that it was 100 years ago. And 100 years ago, we had five meatpacking plants in Chicago that, that uh, they would meet and they price fixed. And they were broken up. The big five were broken up. And then as a result, 
the, the Stockyards and Packers Act was passed in uh, literally 100 years ago this week. Uh, again, those five huge packing plants controlled 45% of the market. Today, four in, in beef control 85% of the market. And COVID's the perfect example of what happened. So these, these four multinational corporations, they have enough weight that President Trump's only executive order, his first executive order when it came to COVID was to keep them open. And, and so uh, it wasn't for masks or, or to mass produce uh, anything or to shift anything. It, it was is to keep the packers open. And so what we saw last year was consumers paid the most they ever had for meat. You had workers who are working for the same wage as when my family moved to Sioux City in 1984. So workers are being suppressed, working in dangerous uh, settings. And then you have farmers who are being squeezed by the price because the price that the farmer gets compared to the price that packers send out to grocery stores and, and restaurants and what have you is so dramatically off. So basically the, the farmers, the consumers and the workers are getting screwed. And so what we used to have is a network of a lot of regional packers. And now it's so concentrated that a year and a half ago, there was a fire down in uh, Kansas and that disrupted the whole market. So we have only 50 meatpacking plants in the United States that produce like 90% of our food. And, and it's so concentrated that, that we don't have much uh, adaptability or flexibility. And I feel that's a national security issue, but it's also an economic issue in a sense that it's about rural revitalization. So when I talk about antitrust, this is it, it, almost everything that you want uh, when it comes to let's let's go from environmentalism to climate change to workers' rights to redeveloping the rural economy, all of it, the very first step is enforcing our antitrust laws. And I'll say that the Biden administration has been absolutely crushing it by putting on people like Lena Khan, uh, Tim Wu, and their executive order for uh, a more fair and competitive uh, marketplace in the American economy that, that happened uh, recently, those are things that are absolute musts uh, that I feel. And, and I've had these same people who retweet me who are on the other side are seeing this. So this may not be for the general public, but for the people that it affects, this is a great thing. And they are opening up to the Biden administration when it comes to this. And it's not just a matter of like, oh, this is an issue where they agree with us. It's like, this is the biggest issue in the, having to do with their livelihood. And they agree with us. Exactly. And, and that's something that we can bring to these communities and, and, and just talk to them. And, and honestly, I had nobody tell me when I first started uh, running that antitrust is, is something you should run on. What happened was my, my grandma passed away Thanksgiving of 2016. And the last thing she told me was, you got to take care of the farm. Uh, and that just hit home. And so when I started looking in farm issues and egg issues, I was like, holy cow, this is a, a, just a huge concentration uh, and, and way more dramatic than what anyone's really talking about. We talk about tech, we talk about pharmacy, all this stuff. It, it, and it's we're living in the second Gilded Age with the amount of concentration we have. And so I just started going out to farm events and, and talking to different random people. And again, all over the political spectrum and just listen to them. And I was like, oh, and just kept on hearing 
you know, we just don't inf- enforce our antitrust laws like we used to. And so I made it a, a pillar of my campaign and it, it, it stemmed from not polling people. It stemmed from just going out and having conversations and, and understanding what's on the ground with folks and, and the reality. Look, it also goes right at the heart of what the Republicans have tried to make their strength in rural areas other than white grievance, right? Which is they position themselves as pro-agriculture. But what you in your campaign and what your argument for the rural vote nationally is, is to expose the fact that they are no different on agriculture than they are on oil, than they are on big business generally, which is they side with giant conglomerate business and not with the people doing the work. And and that is certainly an opportunity for Democrats to just stick with what they're always for and win voters. Yeah, I agree. And it's like, Jason, we were talking about this a couple of months ago in, in relation to uh, antitrust in the tech sector. And, and what we were talking about, J.D., was we have to be careful when we're when we're getting into um, political coalitions with with Republicans to enforce antitrust against big tech, that we need to push them to apply that standard to other sectors, which they have traditionally weakened antitrust for, and that they've shown very little willingness to apply, you know, antitrust laws, for example, to agribusiness or to meatpacking plants than they do Facebook, because they, they want to attack Facebook and Twitter and all these other places, um, because they view them as a, a threat to their political power. But the meatpacking plants are a source of their political power. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's, again, call them on their game. They're going to talk about culture wars when we can talk about, no, this is economic policies. We're on the right side of this for so many of these folks. And, and like, I never got pushback again. I, I talked to farmers and people in the industry who will always vote for me and ones who will never vote for me and everywhere in between. And, and they realize how concentrated things are. And, and to me, this is, this is, it's, it's such a, uh, umbrella issue that you can put so many things into it. And we're at a very pivotal time uh, for this as well. Well, in your current job, you say that the top 39 rural counties are key to Democratic victory uh, of the Senate in 2022, and that you only need to increase Democratic margins, and if I'm reading this correctly, by 5% in those counties in order to accomplish what we need to. Do you mind just walking us through that math? So 39 counties comes from this district, uh, the original, I ran in 39 counties. And we saw what we could do when we uh, drive up voters and, 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 and really try to work statewide with folks. And so we're like, okay, if we expanded 39 counties in, in 2018, I punched above the top of the ticket by 17%. And then this last time, 2020, uh, I think it was about three, uh, three or 4% as well. And so we're like, okay, we're not, we're not going to lie to folks and say, oh, we can do 10% better in these counties. Uh, it's, it's a lot of these folks, uh, it, it's tough to move the needle, even a, a percent or two, but, but what we're trying to do is pick 39 counties in battleground states across the nation in non-metro areas. And in doing so, there's little things that, that we felt that we did in our campaign um, that Matt Hildreth has experience in, is in what he's been doing the last decade in, in working in politics. And so we're going to combine uh, for 2020 to focus and just to bring uh, Democratic performance up by 5%. And so that's, that's the short 2020 vision. We have a much larger vision, and it, it goes with what we call rural brand ambassadors. And it is extremely important that we find who 
can speak in their communities. And what our polling shows is the number one uh, folks who are, are most trusted in these areas, doctors and nurses, which is, is really interesting at this time with vaccinations and everything. The second uh, is farmers and ranchers, even though they're a small portion of the, the overall, I think in Iowa, they're, they're only like four to 6% of the, the actual uh, population, but uh, uh, they have a much larger weight when they speak. And then the other ones are, are like teachers and, and then we go from there. But what we're trying to do is, is improve the democratic brand encounter the myths and disinformation. And so we feel if folks give a message, and let's say something like this infrastructure package, we want to work with a local person, let's say they're in Carroll County, to do a a short little video, and we work with them on on saying, this is what the infrastructure package means in your community and and, and how it will help and, and get that out there. And so one, we can be very proactive on things, and then it's also to address mis- and disinformation. So by 2024, let's say uh, the GOP is going to go after whether it's Biden or whoever runs, and, and they come out with just a flat-out lie. We have thousands, hundreds, or thousands of rural brand ambassadors across the nation to counter this message. And, and that's what's really missing right now is that network. Now, there's also probably a fair amount of people listening to this who are thinking, okay, great, but you know, I'm tired of trying to trying to win over these Trump voters in places that I've never been to. And, you know, and maybe they even have slurs that they used to refer to our homes like flyover country or whatever. You know, if they do, they do, but place this in context, right? I mean, I've seen where you've talked about what things are going to be like by 2040 in this country if we don't actually reach out and, and win back rural voters. So place it in context for people so that they understand that this is really important. This isn't, you, you can't just keep winning elections without winning rural votes. Exactly. And we love to talk about Georgia and Arizona and where we're going with that. And maybe someday Texas will turn blue. Uh, but the reality is you see the overall biasness towards the rural vote right now in the electoral college uh in the senate and then the senate picks the judges and so all three of those significant to this country significant to our democracy have a rural skew but then you look at what's going to happen by 2040 and it's predicted that 70 percent of our population is going to live in just 15 states so that means 30 percent of our population is going to be represented in the senate by 70 percent of, of the senators. And, and if where are we as a party uh, preparing for that? And, and so that's where I feel that we are really missing the ball. And that's why a huge, huge portion of why I wanted to do this. It's not only my beloved state of Iowa, seeing it shift from a proudly purple state where we had Harkin and, and Grassley for, for decades shift ruby red. It's, it's also nationwide. I want to make sure that everything that we're fighting for, uh, again, uh, healthcare, climate change, uh, our economy, uh, so many things that, that what we're passionate about, we're not going to get them done I- I- unless we start improving better in the rural vote. Well, and plenty of people who hear that, they hear that 70% of Americans will live in only 15 states. They hear that 70% of the Senate will represent only 30% of the country. And their natural, understandable reaction is, hey, that's bullshit. That's not fair. We're not saying it's not bullshit. We're not saying it's fair. We're just saying that you can't hope to change it when you don't have 70% control, right? Like, that's the reality we're heading towards. So rather than just spend all of our energy being angry about it, your point is, why don't we prepare for it and try and win over some of those voters so that we can still compete and win? 
absolutely. I mean, those are those are the 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 lines that we're playing in right now. And maybe someday DC will become a state. Maybe Puerto Rico will become a state. But until uh, some of that happens, uh, this is this is the hand we are dealt, and and we got to start improving on where we've been. I mean, twenty years ago, the Senate Majority Leader was from across the river in South Dakota, uh, was Tom Daschle. And we had senators in North Dakota and Nebraska, Iowa, uh, Missouri, and, and uh, Indiana. And a lot of those states are up right now, and, and a lot of folks aren't giving those folks any chance. And so I think as a Democratic Party, we rely too much on campaigns, which then we organize from, July, at best, July to November. We need infrastructure in place to allow candidates. So like when we had success in 2018, and, and what you when you had success, like we have great candidates, we have the infrastructure in place, so they're not reinventing the wheel every time. It's, man, I agree 100% because, and I know you've experienced this too, the thing where people come to you and they're trying to get you to run for something. And if you're like, I'm not running right now, they're like, but then who will do it as if as if there's a who that's going to save the country and not not a what or not an action over time. And that's really what this show is about. Right. It's about equipping our listeners to be those ambassadors throughout the country to put that infrastructure of message in place. When you listen to the Headspace app for meditation, there are a few choices as to who you want to be sort of the narrator of your guided meditation. For me, it's been the original guy from the beginning. Same. Uh, yeah, yeah same. So Andy. And, and so what I'm curious about is, would you want to meet Andy? No, you can't meet your heroes, Jason. That's what they say. Well, Jason, you know who I picture when I hear Andy's voice is, you know, the movie Soul. Have you seen Soul? Uh-huh, There's yeah, like yeah. these guys oh, like, yeah. in like sort of the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Like the yeah, of, the, yeah, like the I accountant picture. people yeah. and like the, yes. That's Ooh, what I picture. I'm yeah. going there now. That's what, I'm, that's yeah. what Andy's going to look like to me now. Well, Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. It is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. It makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. And you deserve to feel happier. And Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash M54. That's headspace.com slash M54 for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. It's the best deal they offer right now. So go to headspace.com slash M54 today. In all seriousness, do you ha- can you do like an Andy impression? It's like, yeah. okay, so we'll just start in the normal way. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just lie down. Great. Well, JD, we have what used to be called Quarantine Corner, but we could potentially be reading. <laughs> it could we could come back to that original name, but we now call it Aren't We Relatable Corner, which is where we share something about our week outside of politics. I imagine you two are about to talk about baseball, so I'll go first. I was hoping he would uh, talk about baseball. I have so, so little to offer to that discussion, but I'll do mine first. I was up in Sullivan County, New York this weekend at Bethel Woods, which is the original site of Woodstock, uh, for the first concert in Zach Brown Band's uh, national tour. It was incredible. Uh, it was incredible on so many levels. It was I've never been to Woodstock, the venue before. It's amazing. I had hadn't been to a concert in forever, and I'd never seen Zach Brown Band, which is like my one of my favorite bands. 
and it was just awesome to see everybody out there. It was a cool outdoor venue, so it was perfect uh, for the times that we live in. They're now traveling the country, so for listeners, if you're in their path, you should absolutely go see them. It was it was an amazing concert. Ravi, you posted on Instagram some quotation about country music that I love. Oh, it's the best, what it, man! What it was? Yeah, it's uh, it's this physicist i think or a chemist uh, i'd read this book a lot before i loved country music I, I fell in love with country music around 2010 2011 when i moved to nashville and i used to say country music was the only music i didn't like but this quote it's uh there's a general place in your brain i think preserved for melancholy of relationships past it grows and prospers as life progresses forcing you finally get your better judgment to listen to country music uh, well, I think I, this would be a good transition because last weekend I just uh, went to Hinterland here in Iowa, and it's a music festival, three-day music festival where we camped uh, outdoors. It got a little crowded, so I kind of just stood in the back. But uh, the headliners were Avett Brothers, uh, Tyler Childers, and Leon Bridges, and it was just so great to hear fantastic music again. Uh, but then I, I apologize. So I'm doing two, uh, tomorrow I am going to the major league baseball game at the field of dreams. Uh, it is, they built a stadium for this one time event and just, uh, it's going to be historic for major league baseball. It's the first major league baseball game in the state of Iowa. Uh, and just, it, it's, we're all really looking forward to it. JD, are they putting up a fence or are they just going to go ahead and use the corn? <laughs> You know? So I, I saw a picture today. And I was curious about that. Uh, the fence out there is see-through. So it looks uh, like it's the corn, but there is there. I, I don't know if it's glass, plexiglass or what, but that's yeah, it's smart. pretty cool. That's, that's yeah. very smart. Well, listeners, yeah. you should go listen to it. JD has an ad from his congressional campaign. It's done by a good friend of mine, <laughs> Matt McLaughlin. Uh, that do, that's a play on the Field of Dreams. Yeah, that was our 2018 campaign. And then we got Kevin Costner to do our 2020 launch video, uh, do the voiceover. So this is like so many worlds coming together for this. That's awesome. Well, uh, I will force you to talk about baseball, which is, so you, okay, you are now uh, 41. Is that right? You're 41 years old? Correct. 41 years old, former professional baseball player, pitcher, uh, who I believe, at least I know a few months ago, you got your velocity up back up to 87, right? Yep. And you are pitching in town ball, which is just adult amateur baseball. Uh, same sort of thing I play in, except you're way better at it because, you know, people paid you to do it in the past. No one ever <laughs> paid me to do it. Um, but Athletic you... Greens indirectly pays you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, that is a good point. No, but uh, so I give a shout out to the fact that you are, I think, what, now headed for like the Iowa – Adult Amateur Baseball State Tournament, like Town Ball State Tournament, right? So it's Minnesota. Uh, oh, I okay. Up, you're playing and you, you had to play up there. Yeah. So uh, be, because of campaigns and COVID and everything, I haven't seen my folks. And so I moved up there for, uh, I don't know if it's temporary or permanent uh, at this moment. And I hadn't touched a ball in seven years. And so this is the first summer. It, it's been the greatest thing. Minnesota Town Team Baseball it, in sports, I think it was Sports Illustrated, did the top 50 sporting events that you should go to. And the state tournament for the B and C classes is one of those top 50 things. Now, we're, we're the A class, which is more the metropolitan area. But we'll go out and play in Bird Island and in Red Wing and all these towns that have these beautiful fields. They sell beer for a buck, uh, get 100 fans, and it's just pure Americana. And it, it, it is having my parents there, uh, just this is such a special summer in my life uh, for, for that. And it, so it reminds me of travel ball when I was a oh, kid. Yeah. I, I got to go to towns in, Omaha, like, or in, uh, in Nebraska and Iowa and all that. And, and it would be 
you know, in a, in a, in a small town where folks were like, well, let's go see this team of high schoolers from Kansas city play our varsity team. And man, I loved it. There'd be like a hundred people in the stands like that. And it, uh, that's so cool. Well, uh, but last thing is you should brag a little, like you are still just dealing, right? <laughs> You're playing against like 20 year old so, kids and just dealing. Yeah. So, I mean, we have a D1 kid, a couple D2 kids, uh, D3 kids and Juco, uh, but a bunch of us are older too. So we're heading into state tournament and I, I believe I'm 11 and one with two saves, uh, like a one three seven ERA and more strikeouts than inning pitch. And the biggest thing to me though, is, uh, uh, my walks are, I only, I think have like 12 walks on the year. So that's ridiculous, dude. Like, I love how he prefaced that Robbie with, I believe I am. And then recited his statistics <laughs> like, like perfectly. Cause I do the same thing. Like I calculate all my advanced metrics and stuff. And then I go, you know, I think my OPS is like, anyway, it's, you know, exactly what it is. is my point. That's, that's, for, for people who don't speak baseball, those numbers are ridiculous. Well, and it's it's also I could probably cite what pitch I threw to in the sixth inning of a game I pitched like a decade ago. Too. Yeah, it's it's yeah. that's that's the pitcher inside me. All right, well, that's awesome. Whatever amount uh, Grace did not edit out of this when it finally airs, thank you, Grace. So, Can I just give a shout out to Grace and her winning Wisconsin and how much that meant to me for a rural and talked about the rural side of things. I thought she did a fantastic job, and I hope uh, there's a sequel somewhere. JD, that's so sweet. I'm leaving that in. Or at least I'll save it for myself forever. No, do it. Leave it in. <laughs> Excellent podcast. People should go back and listen to it. Well, grab an oar. Uh, JD, uh, you have a great organization. What can we do to support it? Yeah, the biggest thing right now is we're just getting off the ground. And so uh, there's a, two different things. We, we're looking for more volunteers. We're, we're going to be reaching out and doing a listening, a virtual listening tour on, uh, I know a, there's a lot of rural activists out there that have a lot of opinions. And so uh, if you want to reach out to us at ruralvote.org, uh, please do so. Uh, and then the other, uh, as always, uh, if folks can chip in a few bucks, we're, we'll could really use it. And on the voicemail front, listeners, we've gotten a ton of your voicemails. They're great, and we're going to use a lot of them. And, you know, keep sending those relationship politics ones, too, because we're going to potentially put those all together and deal with those all at once. And again, that voicemail number is 508-687-2589. All right. I'm at Jason Tanner on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. JD, lots of good baseball and political content at JD Scholten, S-C-H-O-L-T-E-N on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. JD, thanks for doing this, man. Oh, thank you for having me. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. All right, I will introduce this segment. So just as we went over the date so I could send an audio file to Grace, she panicked and realized that she had forgotten her friend's birthday two days ago and sent her like an innocuous text that she's worried might communicate i don't care about your birthday jason i think you meant she wanted to wait until the podcast so we can record a special birthday yeah, message that, for her friend and release it on thursday 
because it's a bigger audience than if she were to just call her friend. Well, well, tell us about this. Wait, I just say the beauty of this, Ravi, is that Grace can edit this however she wants. So yeah. Grace, maybe this is your chance. Make it up to your friend. Happy birthday, Seagal. You're a beautiful, wonderful person in this world. You make everyone's life around you better. I'm sorry that I forgot on your actual birthday, but I hope that this very random shout out from two people you don't know and myself uh, slightly makes up for it. And can I just say, Seagal, you might really like this show if you listen to it other times and not just this time. So, you know, this is really just, we're trying to get one additional <laughs> listener. Yeah, audience audience building. building. All right, happy birthday, Seagal. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.